Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Tapping Up podcast with myself, Daryl, and as always, Ian. Positive mindset is continuing into this week, despite obviously the, the football results, but more importantly, this positive mindset is being brought on by the one and only Big Fire Man Sam. The man you bring in with four games to save you. The <laughs> bung-taking, one-game England manager. Uh, England's greatest been, manager. That now has been, well, was relegated in his last job. I don't count. We, we ignore that one because um, it's a blip. And obviously, he's saving us. Saving us from imp- impending oblivion that is the championship. Uh, we're going to stay up. Probably going to keep him on next season. Going to play Brexit ball for the next two years. Establish yourself as a Premier League club, and then before you know it, Arnie Slot wants job back, and we're going to Champions League. Sounds like a plan. I mean, uh, all joking aside, as a Leeds season ticket holder, what's your thoughts? The, the... Uh, honest thoughts or positive thoughts? Well, you can give us both. You know, I mean, you can you can talk through your positivity, but you know that I think what our listeners really like is our genuine. And unfiltered opinions. So uh, I'll tell you mine after you tell me yours. But I'm, I'm intri- intrigued to know what you think. Genuine, genuine, and unfiltered opinion is that I think Leeds are fucked either way. So I don't think that this appointment necessarily changes uh, what happens in the season. I think they were already going down um, with Gracia going. He did an interview with the Athletic about essentially how this has, has, has come to be, because he started quite strongly. Uh, I know me and you had the discussion at the time. Um, I foolishly tweeted out a prediction that Gracia would keep us up. As everyone knows who listens to this podcast, any prediction that I give is essentially like a touch of death, so, which is why I keep saying that leads are going down. So yeah. uh, basically what you say, the opposite happens. Always, literally. I don't know why, but it appears to be the case. Um, so he's done this interview, and in this interview... Uh, did you know that it was his birthday that he got sacked on? That's pretty shit. No, I did That's not know. Pr- pretty brutal. Yeah, so he gets a phone call on his birthday from his boss. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, we're letting you go. Um, it's all gone wrong. Um, something has happened, and we know we spoke about it before, so I won't get too much today, but something has happened with this football club at the halftime of the Leeds-Crystal Palace game that has caused a significant rift and has caused significant issues within the squad within the management, with everyone involved in this. Don't know what's happened. There were rumours that Luke Ayling and Matt Rocker were apparently scrapping because of some comments that were passed on the the poor defending of Luke Ayling, which, of course, I'm sure you'll be on Matt Rocker's side for that. Um, But he ignored the question when it was put to him in the Athletic article uh, and the Athletic interview about what went on. He said that it's not important to focus on that. It's important to focus on what happened before halftime in the late equaliser and what happened afterwards and since. So something has happened. They're just clearly not allowed or don't want to speak about any further. Um, I think they needed a change, even at this late stage of the season. As I say, I don't think it's necessarily going to affect anything. I think they're going down regardless. But they were going down. So at the very least, you know, we've got a bit of entertainment with Big Sam coming back for a few games and we can laugh at his pressers, can't we? Uh, entertainment, not in every sense except football. Cause, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, my view really is, I mean, normally, as much as you get shit, Big Sam is often the man in these situations to keep you up. I think I've, I've said to you, obviously, we've been talking about it throughout the week as the, the, the news is broke, is that, Sadly, I don't feel Leeds have the 
foundation of a big scene, big t- uh, Sam team in order to keep them up, which is four massive centre backs that you can play uh, across the back four. We know Sam is a four four two man through and out, and um, you know we tend to often would play like you know centre backs at full back to, to to shore it up a little bit with some defensive midfielders in, but probably two defensive midfielders in there as well. Obviously, a real blow we've talked about before about you losing Adams um, because he was and has been probably, I think, one of your best players and I think makes a difference in there in terms of like the ball recoveries, getting the ball back. Um, but I, I, I'll be honest, I say I, 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 that's what concern, will concern me the most. I mean, four games is an incredibly short space of time. Um, I still, obviously, I, you know, I li- I've lived in Leeds for 16, 17 years. I don't want Leeds to go down. But I still think they will stay up personally because I think the key game that it all hinges on is how Forrest get on against Saints. Because if you take that out, Forrest are likely, I think, to lose all three games. As lo- and if we looked at it, that as long as you don't take any more significant hidings, and you'd like to hope, if nothing else, with Big Sam coming in, even if you lose, that might drop those six ones and five ones to like two nils or something like that. But Palace, uh, sorry, Forest have got a worse goal difference and their other teams. So I, I still remain of the view that I think you can stay up based on there being three worst teams. But how it's almost, I almost feel like it's a little bit out of Leeds's hands now that it's in Forest's hands and how they do in that match against Saints. But even if Forest lose all all four of their games and the goal difference um, keeps Leeds above them, doesn't necessarily save Leeds, does it? Because you're then hinging on the results of Everton, for example. Um, it's got to be Everton because if Leeds obviously lose all the few games that have got remaining, they're not going to go above Leicester um, and Leicester will be off scot-free without doing much. I think Leeds need to pick up at least at least four points and I don't see it personally. I think they they have to get a win somewhere, which you'd be targeting either Spurs or West Ham, of course. City, uh, you don't want to say it's impossible, but they're just about untouchable at the moment. We've had a number of discussions, me and yourself. You've obviously mentioned it on the pod a number of times. When it gets to this stage of the season, other than in European competitions, where they seem to falter at the, the very last stages, they seem to get on this role where nothing and no one can stop them. And I, I can see that continuing. I can see them steamrolling the title. I'm sure Arsenal will mess up another couple of times. And I think they'll probably win it by, you know, it'd be six or seven points by the end of it, even though it has been quite close for the majority season. And even though, um, and I know we'll come on to City and Arsenal, Arsenal have been at the top for considerably longer than City. Um, Spurs are Spurs. And again, we'll come on to uh, Spurs and Liverpool, but they always have a clangor in them. So that there is that potential there. And it's at home on the last game of the season. They're probably going to not have anything to play for. West Ham, I I said to you, and we differ on this, if they're safe, I think they beat Leeds. If they're not safe by that point, as long as Leeds go at them very early and get the crowd on their back, they will absolutely crumble because they're that type of team. It's similar to Leeds in that as soon as the crowd turns, the crowd will turn quite drastically. Um, it's not one of these desensitised uh, stadiums like Old Trafford or, you know, some shit like Anfield, for example. Um, and then your other game is Newcastle, which, again, is is just about a write-off. I still think Newcastle have one result that they're going to slip up on. 
I don't think they're going to go unbeaten for the rest of the season, unlike uh, City. But I don't see Leeds, even at home, getting anything out of Newcastle. I mean, you could argue yesterday's match where City won against West Ham 3-0. So, um, gave a glimmer of hope on both fronts in that City, I think, took a while to break West Ham down. Don't think they scored before because it made 60 off minute or something like that. So, again, again, they can have a bit of an off day like that. So, you could, that, that to me gives Leeds something that, again, as much as they're in that kind of vein of form, they're not untouchable. And we know they can have those weird results, but particularly towards the end of the season. But equally, it gave a bit of hope, I would say, against West Ham, that West Ham, whilst they can be quite resilient sometimes, as most Morals teams can be, they can fold in the way that they did and suddenly quickly went from, you know, looking like they might pinch a draw to a 3-0 and sounds like it could have been more of a hiding. I mean, I watched the Liverpool Fulham match last night, so I didn't watch. I only saw Haaland's goal is the only thing I've seen because obviously he beat the record. Uh, maybe we'll come on to discuss that as well. But um, I thought that was the kind of game and the way that it panned out that probably gave Leeds a glimmer of hope against both teams that if you can frustrate City, and you know, there's a, there's a chance there. And equally with West Ham, if you can break them down eventually, even if it takes time, then a non-to, somebody like that, who you can give the ball to for a moment of magic, can get another one and it can be safe. So I have always said I still think Leeds will stay up and I, I'm not going to change my mind. Are you saying that you also think, obviously, I mean, you must be saying that, but are you saying that you don't think Everton are going to pick up another point? Can't remember their running, but the way that they've been playing... Um... Everton have got... So they've got Brighton next away. They've got okay. City at home. They've got Wolves away. And then they've got Bournemouth on the last day of the season, who obviously are now safe, thanks to the hiding of Leeds, um, at home. I can't see them not picking up another point. I, I'm almost certain they'll pick up at least four from that. Again, the other way you look at it is it's almost a... A mini tournament between Everton, Forest, and Leeds, and it who gets the most points would stay up. And you and Forest have got a point advantage, so you've got a head start on them in that. But as long as you match what they get, so if they only get a point, they get four, you get four, you'll be safe. So that that's the other way that it comes down to. You've got a. I know you're banking on other teams then, and you, everybody always wants it in their own hands, but. It's, it's going to be hard for Leeds to have it in their own hands, I think, because of the fact you've got City, then Newcastle. That is a bit of a killer in that you've got, you know, your two hardest games of your four left straight away when Big Sam comes in that could then, you know, crush you down to thinking, fuck, we lose those two. It looks hard, say, Everton pick up three points and, you know, go a couple above you. But equally... By that point, you know undoubtedly what you've got to do. And don't you, you know, you, you, you get down to, right, OK, well, we need... West Ham's the one you've got to target. That's the one that you've got to beat them. And I still think the fact that they're safe helps you because West Ham are looking like they will get to... Or certainly have got a good chance to get to the you know, conference. Is it Europa Conference they're in final? Yeah. I think they are safe. Their minds and Moyes will be, as long as we're safe, we'll rest players... We'll try. I mean, imagine West Ham nearly getting relegated, but getting a European title. Do you think they're safe? Do you think they're safe now? Yeah, I do. On thirty-four points, I think four above you got the the other teams, and because we're saying the other teams aren't great enough, that I think they're fine. 
and I, I think they're okay. And I personally think they'll stick all the eggs in the, by the time they get to you, they could be in the final and they might be resting players, people like Declan Rice. You're not going to want to play him in a game where potentially you might be safe on point. You know, not safe, safe, mathematically, but you think you're okay. I think Moyes is the type of person that would say, do you know what? I think we're all right. Pragmatic. Let's go for Europe. You could get a, a much reduced team where he's thinking, you know, let's keep everybody fit. Let's keep Rice fit. Let's keep, the you know, Antonio uh, fit to make sure they don't pick up any knocks that's going to impact him for Europe. So I completely disagree with you on the point that I think the best thing for Leeds is that if West Ham pick up, I don't know West Ham have got next. I've got to be honest. I mean, I could have a quick look. I mean, um, I, could, I can tell you. So I, I think you'd be... If you're a West Ham supporter, I, I can't imagine any of them think that they're safe at the moment. And I think if anyone at West Ham, the, the actual club itself, whether it be David Moyes, whether it be any of the players, think that they're safe on 34 points with the fixtures that they've got, they are significantly wrong. Uh, so they've got, obviously, they've just been battered by City. They've got, they've got, yeah, they've got Man U at home next, which they have to win that. Obviously, you want West Ham to win because I, I know your old man's a West Ham fan and obviously for Liverpool as well, that'd be quite a considerable result for you. They've then got Brentford away, which with the form that Brentford have been in, I could see Brentford winning that. The next two games, obviously in between, or either side, sorry, the Brentford game, they've got um, Alkmaar in the semi-final. The final isn't until the 7th of June, um, by the looks of it, which seems a significant a time away like after the end of the season. So I'm not sure about that. That doesn't seem right. Um, But the next or the final two games of the season, they've got Leeds and Leicester. They they can't be looking at that and thinking, yeah, we're safe regardless of us not picking up another point. Because if they lose against Leeds and Leicester... I I think Brighton... Sorry, Brentford have dropped off. So I I wouldn't be surprised to see them beat Brentford. I think they could... Again, if I was them targeting in what they need to, a win there against Brentford, I think they're definitely safe. Yeah. And then they can concentrate on Europe. And if they then think, do you know what, we've got Leeds. And again, if they needed to win, if you're saying they've got home to Leicester last game of the season. Away to Leicester. I'd still back West Ham to get a result to, to, to keep them up there. So I, I, think, I think West Ham stay up. And I think that's good for Leeds that that puts their focus into Europe, which means by the time you play them, they are potentially looking to that, looking ahead probably to that European. Um, but if the final isn't until the 7th of June, you're talking another two, if not longer, two and a half weeks after the Leeds game. So they're not going to necessarily be, even if they they do get it to the final, they're not going to be concentrating on that. The Brentford game, which you think that they'll be able to pick up a win at, they've got the European games either side of that. So if they're concentrating on Europe, they're going to be then potentially resting players. It's not... I, I think that they that would be a very dangerous mindset of any West Ham fan or West Ham uh, support or anyone involved with the club to think that they're safe on 34 points with the games that they've got. Yeah, I, I still come back to, I think there's three worse teams than them. I think that, that, that I'm not sure that the other three teams are capable necessarily of getting to 34 points. And I think I'm happy to be wrong here, but West Ham have a better goal difference than any, by, like, probably by a fair margin than any of the other teams. So if it came down to goal difference, they're probably safe compared to you, Forrest or Everton, I would suspect. 
Yeah, so Leeds have minus 24, Forest have minus 32, and Everton have minus 25, which worries me about the, the Everton one. Um, they've got minus 13 of West Ham, same as Leicester. So, you know, that goes in their favour as well. But, I mean, it's a skin of the teeth job if they do stay up, but them staying up, even by the skin of the teeth, and getting a European title for, you know... It's I'm a fantastic pretty, season. Pretty yeah. sure, if you know, if, if you were offered that at the start of the season, you'd take that, you'd snap someone's hand off for that. I would lead. take just playing in Europe, never mind winning a European title, but we digress. Um, last thing about Big Sam, obviously we've got to talk about the... Uh, money incentive, so the the real reason that he's taking this job, he is allegedly on five hundred thousand uh, pounds as a, a contract for the for final four games, with a bonus of two and a half million if he keeps them up. Um, obviously, it means nothing to Leeds in the, the grand scheme of things. If he does keep them up, three million is more than worth it because they're going to get significantly more than that, um, and obviously they're going to be able to keep the key, uh, the team together uh, in the following season, but. It's a lot of money. You take I mean, it it's a games. lot of money. It's ridiculous. It works out three quarters of a mil per game. But equally, as I said to you, again, as much as to normal people on normal wages to us, that sounds ridiculous. Three mil in the grand scheme of the millions that you, hundreds of millions you get by being in the Premier League is a fucking bargain. Um, the thing that I said to you that I, I, I like, uh, I think we differ on is I actually think the funny thing is, let's say he works the magic and keeps you up. He's got a shout to stay in the job and say, look, give, give me another season and see what I can do next season. And that's the disaster for me is getting parachuting big, big fireman Sam in to, to, to save you is one thing. You do not want him as your manager next season. And he, you can't argue that if he keeps him up to some degree, he makes a compelling argument to say, look, I saved you four games. Give me a bit more time if he wants to stay. in, Maybe he wants to take his three mil and fuck off back to drinking pints of wine. But, new um, podcast, Tippy Tappy Football. Exactly that. Maybe doesn't he? Obviously, he doesn't need the money at that point. But I think that 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 would be the worry for me in some way for Leeds is that. Um, and now I think you could argue there. Obviously, everything with the Forty ers probably then goes through if they stay up. Everything there looks good. They're, are they going to want Big Sam? Well, 49ers are the ones that got him in allegedly. So they were uh, they had the hand in obviously getting rid of the director of football. They had the hand in getting rid of the manager. Um, so, obviously, if reports are to be believed, they wanted Big Sam in for these last four games. I'll be honest, if you said to me now, if you offered it to me, Leeds will stay up, but he's going to be your manager for next season, I'd snap your hand off. It, it wouldn't even be a question about it, because that's how much staying up means. If we get relegated, then it's irrelevant who we're going to get, because we're going to probably end up with someone like Neil Warnock, out with for next season? So, it's not going to be cracking in Championship. Yeah, and again, it could be worse, but I just think all I could see is getting into a similar cycle that Leeds don't do that well. You definitely don't want a man like Big Sam in charge of your recruitment because he's (laughs) going to build you a dog shit team and spend money. Get Tarkovsky whenever and go down. Well, yeah, he's going to buy all these big units that he's used to and you've got a season ticket and you're going to be watching fucking 19 games of absolute wank long ball football. (laughs) So, but um, if you give me again, I said this to you. If you give me the most boring football, if if we stay up, and again, I don't think it'll happen. But you tell me you're going to be watching the most boring, mundane football for the next 19 games next season that you've paid your money for. But you'll comfortably stay up by March next year. 
again, I'd snap your hand off. I'd take that all day long. I'm sick of relegation battles. And I, I'll be honest, again, I don't disagree with that point. I mean, I, again, as a Liverpool fan, we've had managers, some managers through the years, Rafa in particular, where, you know, our success wasn't exactly built on scintillating football. And <laughs> I've always been a big believer in you get the results and the team right and the position right. And then you, when, you, when you've consolidated, that's when you can maybe expand and look to play a bit more of an expansive brand. So playing the most attractive football in the world and getting relegated means jack shit. So I, I don't disagree with you. And I think that, but I, I actually think that's the, he feels the, the little bits that I've seen of him. He doesn't feel like Big Sam wants in for the four games, wants the glory and see you later off into the sunset. I feel like he's the kind of the little bits that I've seen of it so far. I feel like he's missed football. He wants that back in his life. The fact that he's on, he started his own podcast tells me he's not exactly inundated with offers of punditry and, and, and talk sport and other things. So I think he misses it. So I've got to be honest, I think he keeps you up. I think he wants that job. Take it. As I say, without a doubt, not even a slight question about it. if he wants it and he keeps us up, he can have it. Um, a big if, of course. Brings us on to City then. Uh, so they've gone back top after uh, the win uh, against. Uh, ironically, against West Ham. Blew my way. Eventually, as soon as they score, it becomes just floodgates are opened, as it seems to be in these last stages of the season. Um, you've got a stat, haven't you, about Arsenal? I do, well, it's out of date now, to be fair. This was correct, I think, as of Sunday when they played. So it is wrong Add now. some days on quickly. I was trying, do you know what? While you were talking then, I was trying to do a little bit of working out, but I, can't, I don't want to get it wrong and then have some dickhead tweet us and point out it was wrong. So uh, it'd be me. The, I'd tweet us at the point. I believe uh, on Sunday when City went top, um, Arsenal had been top for two hundred and forty-four days at the season so far. City only fifteen days. But how long you top is irrelevant. It comes back to that ruthless streak we talked about. Now it would have been if we looked at that. I think Arsenal went back top for another three days, and then obviously City won yesterday, so they've gone back again. So that would probably be, I think, 247 days Arsenal have been top, 16 or 17 days City have been top. But that's just that roof. I saw a st- another stats in as we're going on the stats. Um, I think in the last three years, City have won something like 18 of the 19 games they've played in April in the Premier League. So they just have the April just seems to be that season where they just put it together. They go on that run where they win almost every game and they put together something that unless someone else is matching that, no one can keep up with them. Obviously, they beat Liverpool by a point last season. Incredible running by them to, to, to steal it on that way. And if they do win it, it's five out of six. And the last few have been with them in Liverpool. The last three or four years have been close and, you know, a, a lot closer. Uh, you know, obviously, this, this year it's Arsenal that's pretty close. But I still think with the game in hand that they've got, you know, they're, they're pretty comfortable. Uh, and they're by far a better team than Arsenal. Erling Haaland, is he the Premier League's greatest striker of all time, having only played less than a full season? Has to be. Goes down. Like, doesn't oh. he adjust? Doesn't most people, how many, how many players do you see that, I mean, Salah, I'm, I'm just going to throw it out there, did the previous record Shock. for a 38 game uh, in his first season, 32 goals in 36 appearances. So shows you can come from another league and just hit the ground running. But what he's done uh, in terms of uh, again, he's playing in the best team by a mile. You've got De Bruyne putting in these glorious passes and goals, you know, at his, his feet. It doesn't, 
necessarily surprise me. And I have to be honest, I think if you put a, an Mbappe, a, some, a, a Benzema in that City team, they probably would have done the same. Either of those two, I would personally back to break, have broken the record as well if you put them at that focal point of that team and the chances that they create. So on that, because that's a very bold statement, I would I didn't think you'd say yes to that. Um, greatest Premier League striker of all time. So I'm just going to run through some some very quick names. You tell me if he's better than these then. Um, Didier Drogba. Just yes, <laughs> yes or no. Just give me yes or no. What's the context and the criteria? Who would I rather have in my team? No, I'm not asking that. I'm asking, is he a better Premier League striker? Just Premier League. I mean, obviously, he's done it for one season, but he's come in and he's, he's smashed it up. So you've got, again, you uh, Yes or no answers, Ian? Yes. Yes, he's right, better than Right, OK. Did he, better than Drogba. Uh, Teddy Sheringham? Yes, easily. Robin Van Persie? Easily. Michael Owen? Easily. The Wayne Rooney? Easily. The ones that Whoa. you can say... Shearer. Shearer is the only other person that you can say that has has to be up in the conversation for the greatest Premier League striker. Top goal he, scorer. And, better than Thierry Henry? Uh, yeah, in my opinion, yeah. Luis Suarez? No, absolutely <laughs> Yeah, it goes is. Like, it, it, what he's done is insane. It, I, got I think, in... I agree. I think what he has done is quite simply and literally unmatched because he's, he's broken the record. I don't think you can say he's the greatest Premier League striker of all time after one season. I think Harry yeah, Kane is um, a better Premier League striker than him at this point in time. Look, though, if you look what I'm looking at, and maybe I'm not answering your question, you know, again, he's done it for one season, but if you look at goals per game ratio throughout his career, so in the Bundesliga, which, all yeah. right, again, is not as good as the Premier League, pretty much, if not over a goal a game. He's far in excess of a goal a game in the Premier League, which is undoubtedly the toughest. So if you did some stats on goals per game ratio, he beats all of those people you said by distance. None of them, even Shearer, who is the greatest Premier League striker, are close to over a goal a game. So on the, on some stats like that, but you have to, it's one season and he's the focal point of by far and away the best team in the world. So... I think if you put some of those other players in his position, Drogba is a fine example because Drogba is probably the closest to a monster physical beast that bullies people, had pace, had power like he has. If you put Drogba in Man City's team, would he score 35 goals? I don't think he'd score 35, but it wouldn't surprise me if he scored you well over 30. You know, um, he he it, what he's done for one season is astonishing, but... Yeah, you're probably right. It's probably too early to call him the greatest Premier League striker ever. And is he going to hang around long enough at City to have the chance to beat Shearer's record? If he says, do you know what? I'm going to stay here for six, seven seasons because of his age and I'll still fuck off to Real Madrid later in my career, then he could break that, break that record easily in that time period. If you look at the what he would score to goals, one season, two, three, four seasons, he's going to end up pretty high in the all-time scorers, but nowhere near... That, that, you know, is it, um, I believe Harry Kane's just gone second, hasn't he? Didn't Harry Kane uh, just beat I'm Wayne sure. Rooney? I think Harry Kane just, I'm sure, just beat Wayne Rooney to go second after Shearer. So, you, you know, you've got to stay around to do it and prove yourself. 
and it is probably premature to say that, but based on that one season, no one else has had, ever had a better season than him. And he beat the record with, like, that was a 42-game season. He scored 35 goals. The previous record was 34 in 30 games. That's insane. Yeah. So it, when Salah held his record, would you have said that he was the greatest? He's not really a striker. Or, uh, the greatest forward in Premier League history at the point that he broke that particular record. No, that, that, that's the point that I'm was it the great was the greatest season. Yeah, because he beat the record. So if you look at it on paper and you could even take into account he, at that point when we bought him, he was an out and out winger and was playing more on the wing than centrally. So that was an insane season. Is that one of the personally, i.e. in what he did in that team as well, best ever Premier League season? It's got to be top three. Haaland's season has got to be in that top three and probably whoever then scored in terms of goal scoring and then obviously I think the other two were equal weren't there was Andy Cole and Alan Shearer Shearer shared the record with 34 before so in terms of goal scoring they've got to go down as the best ever individual performances they have to we'll stick with Salah and we'll stick with his and and obviously our beloved uh, team Um, nearly threw away a 3-0 lead this weekend, one of the craziest things I've seen in a long time, ending in one of the most Spursiest fashions I've ever seen. You couldn't have a, fa- a better way to sum up Spurs, could you? The definition of Spursy, the term Spursy. So, we, I mean, cruised into a 3 0 lead within 20 minutes and we're looking unstoppable. I'm like, this is Liverpool of old. This is the kind of run we need. It's five on the, on the bounce. I still don't think that. The way Man U and uh, are playing, it's not without, you know, Brighton. I'm hopefully, we're looking for a Brighton win tonight. Keep that gap quite tight. If Liverpool win all four games the rest of their season. The way that Man U seem to have hit a bit of a, 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 it's not beyond the realms of possibility, although the odds are heavily stacked against Liverpool. But, um, yeah, cruised, cruised into a 3-0 three, three lead. Spurs looked all over the place, absolutely woeful. All of a sudden, you could see Spurs creeping back in and actually... As soon as it went to 3-0, Spurs were by far the better team for the rest of the the whole game. They hit the woodwork three times, I think. They obviously got it back to 3 all in injury time. And it has to be that twat for Charleston, obviously former Everton player. And you're thinking, sat there watching the game, like, how have we possibly done this to Spurs from a 3-0 lead? And then they go and Mora, I think it was, wasn't it? Just a ferociously sloppy back pass and... Tremendous finish from Jota, given he's been in a bit of vein of form and out of out uh, out of the the starting lineup, or just coming back into it. But yeah, the most Spursy thing you could possibly see. But Spurs were the better team. I'm not I'm not going to deny that, even though we won. Leeds have saved Jota's season. So Jota, how many games was it before? And then Leeds People, allow him thirty-two to... games. I think it was Ugh. nearly a whole year, nearly a full calendar year. He'd gone without scoring, and then he scored two against you. And from that moment on, I think he scored five in four since then. So yeah, uh, as as per usual, Leeds have been the sacrifice that have been needed to save someone's season. Um, I am going to play a little fun game with you, Ian. Um, it's what I like to call Ian's rose-tinted glasses. So first thing. Jota, since we're talking about him, should he have been sent off for karate kicking Oliver Skip in the head? No, it's never a red card. It's like, Skip's got his head down. It's not a red card. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Um, okay. 
So that's the first one. Should you have got a penalty for the Nunes um, infringement, should we say, against Fulham in I'm, midweek? I still think there's contact there. It's Jesus Christ. Spending and very, very slack. And I, I, you know what I like most is I know what you're building up to here. Yeah. And <clears throat> I raced home in preparation for this very point <laughs> and have got some stats ready for you. So oh, good, on, good. The, on the third point that you're going to make... But, can I ask the question first? Oh, so let let me team. ask the question first. Ian, who is the greatest goalkeeper of all time? I texted you last night watching the Liverpool match and said, do you know what? Alisson might be the best goalie I've ever seen. And <laughs> you sent me back some, uh, like, what on earth are you talking about? And I was like, I'm telling you, for... What he he's redef- he's taken the sweeper keeper role that Neuer kind of progressed from other keepers and made his own, if you like. I'm going as far as Allison has taken that and gone a step further in terms of his distributions better, and he's easily the best goalie I've ever seen play for Liverpool in 35 years. Doesn't make him the best ever, admittedly, but the best ever Liverpool goalie, certainly in my opinion, ever, and certainly in the 35 years I've supported Liverpool. And I'm telling you. He is in the conversation for best five goalies of all time. Jesus Christ. So, first of all, no. No, Ian. Just no. And I'm going to run through some names for you. And this is where it gets fun because inevitably you'll shoot me down this. Buffon. Definitely top five in the equation. Probably better because he's done it for longer and play is, is longevity. Yeah, when you said that to me, definitely an argument that Buffon's better. Can't deny that. But top five. I'm... Olivia Kahn. No. So I'd rather have Alisson. Alisson's better. One of the most decorated German players of all time. And you're not putting him in above Alisson? No. Okay. Peter Shilton. Won the World Cup. So, um, you know, always goes down with that. But 100% Alisson is a better goalkeeper than Peter Shilton. Not even comparable. And I, I also notice how your list has changed from the people that you oh, I, I've, I've got. Okay. Another, I'm going through that as well. Dino Zoff. Take Alisson every day. Gordon Banks. Alisson. Peter Yashin Schmeichel. Is the one. Yashin, Yashin is, is, is Yashin isn't even close. He's clearly above. He's got an award named after him. He's got um, an award named after him. He's the only goalie to ever win World Player of the Year. And I gave you that one. I accepted that by text. So let me let me read the list that I sent to you, and then you can go on and, and tell me that he's better. Manuel Neuer, you said he was better than. Yeah, I think he's taken what Neuer's done and improved on it. He's a better sweeper keeper than Neuer. Petr Cech. I say he's better than Peter Cech, and I've got some stats <laughs> to back this up very, very shortly. B- so. Before we can go on to that, okay. Edwin van der Sar. He, not even remotely, miles better than Ryan. Van der Sar, when you sent me that, I was like, what, are you joking here? Schmeichel, yes. All the other names you've said, yes. Van der Sar, not even in the, in, in the equation. Casillas. Yeah, definitely better than Casillas. Jesus Christ. I, there's literally no help in you. I'm sorry, there's so, no help okay, here. So let me back up my point to you, Go ahead. our listeners. Now, I've quickly come home because I, I got wind <laughs> that you might well be trying to call me out on this. So I quickly raced home and got out my stats in my calculator 
uh, and brought up some here. So let me run through this with you. So, and th- this is Premier League only, I should say. So some oh, of the oh, name... oh, we didn't say Premier League only. No, no, but this is the, this the, in terms of twenty minutes worth of data and stats that I could find available. That was all I had. So, and I've got at least four of the people that you mentioned. So clean sheets in the Premier League. Peter Cech, two hundred and two clean sheets in five hundred and fourteen appearances. That is a percentage of thirty nine percent. Okay. Okay. Edwin Van der Sar, one hundred and thirty two clean sheets in three hundred and thirteen games. That is a clean sheet percentage of 42%. Okay. Peter Schmeichel, 128 clean sheets in 310 games. That's 41%. Alisson, 76 clean sheets in 170 games. That's 44%. That's more clean sheets than all of those people you just called out. And I think most people would be in agreement that he plays behind a worse defence than any of those other keepers did. Chelsea's defence when Czech played there, Van der Sar and Schmeichel, for both for Man U, their defences were both infinitely better than Liverpool's. Liverpool have Van Dijk, who's got a claim to be in there for a great defender, but then you've got the clown of Trent that he plays in front of. In terms of, So he has got the highest clean sheet percentage out of any of those players that you've said. The only person I can find in Premier League history with a higher percentage is someone who ironically haven't even talked about is Edison, who has 101 clean sheets in 213 games, giving him 47%. Okay? Okay. So, number of saves. This is the number of saves. Can I just interject there? Since we're talking about specifically clean sheets, and we'll we'll see what you address on this. If I say Ray Clements to you, for example, he started in his career 665 games, he had 323 clean sheets, which means he has clean sheet percentage of around 48%. That's higher than Alisson. started games, is that at the top level uh, or is that all levels? Is that in, in his career, so international, Liverpool, so etc. Premier League only. So, uh, again, <laughs> I'd need to... I'd need, but Clemens probably had... How many, cap, how many caps for his country did he have? And Alisson would have had... Alisson's probably got 50, 60 caps for... Brazil, you could add on to that, plus all the clean sheets he got at Roma. So if you're looking at whole career, I'd have to go back and do more stats for our, our listeners. What I'm saying is, Alisson isn't even Liverpool's best goalkeeper of all time. So let me know. I, I, I've widened my criteria. Number of saves. You ready? Peter Cech, 1,005 saves in 514 games. Average of 1.95 saves per game. Van der Sar. 359 saves in 313 games, average of 1.1 save per game. Edison, 350 saves in 213 games, an average of 1.64 saves a game. Allison, 394 saves in 170 games, 2.1, sorry, saves per game. So he's making more saves a game than those other players as well. I don't know what you have to say. I'm not. I'm not agreeing. Am I not even starting to give you a compelling argument of backing up what I said? Not even slightly. He's not in Liverpool's. What about Grobler? Grobler was a, a character. He was like a great goalkeeper, like Alisson. Alisson, <laughs> the stretches of game. If you looked at also points one, that I mean, some of these stats are probably in 
the annals of the internet you could save and like expected goals and things like that. I've never seen a keeper be so less involved in a, in a game and then out of nowhere pull out an incredible save. Alisson is sensational. David De Gea, in his prime, before he's turned into the clown that he was, I would argue was a better goalkeeper than Alisson in his prime. <clears throat> Never. I, 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 he was available for my stats, but given we didn't talk about him and comparatively how many goals he'd scored in the clean sheets, he wouldn't even be close to those numbers. What about David now, Seaman? Nigel Martin? Not, yeah, not even close to Alisson. Not even oh. close. Not even close. Uh, now, the only stat I've got here that probably doesn't work out too favourable for Alisson, if we're being honest, this is the last of the stats I've gone into detail on, is goals conceded. So, and this shows more, again, around about the defence. Peter Cech, 333 goals conceded in 514 games. 0.64 goals conceded a game. Van der Sar, 110 goals conceded in 313 games. 0.35 goals per game. Edison, 161 in 213, which is 0.75 goals a game. Allison is 143 in 170, so it's 0.84 goals a game, which is the worst of the four. For some reason, Schmeichel, you could get his clean sheet percentage, but he wasn't in the stats. I don't know if they just didn't keep him all the way back those days. His stats weren't available for number of saves or goals conceded. So, before we end this particular segment, are you saying, are you sticking with Alisson is the greatest goalkeeper of all time? He, he's one of the greatest I've ever seen, and he will go down as the top one of the top five greatest goalies of all time. Move on. Move on, Ian. I'll let you, you know, I'll let you choose the subject while I sit here speechless. I think I've just made a more than, and I'm intrigued to hear what our listeners think. I've made a more than compelling argument with those statistical backup that I raced home to get for you. Half of the people listening to this podcast are either screaming, what the fuck are you talking about? Or have already turned it off. So we've just lost half of viewership. Um, because of the detail of my, <laughs> my, my research to back up my point. But um, uh, another quick one, just seeing as we're talking about top fives, I found a little article that I thought was interesting, which was the current top five uh, attackers in the world right now ranked from five to one. Do you want to hazard a guess? Uh, have I got to get in order? I mean, I'll take the five if you want to give me the five. If you've written it, it'll be Salah, it'll be Nunes, it'll be Diaz. Um... This is one football, so it is not for oh. me. My rank is world, world football, he said. So it's in uh, everyone in the world. Uh, the, 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 the site where the, yeah. the, the article's on is called One Football. No, no, but is it like world football? So everyone, yes, world football, okay. of course. Yeah, obviously, uh, you tend to find that they're European based because of the nature of the better players. But um... I'm never going to get it in order, obviously. So I'll just name five. Um, obviously, Haaland is probably second or first. He will be alongside um, Mbappe. Correct, both so far. One or two. One yeah. two. Um, Vinicius Junior. Correct. As number, number four. F- four, yeah. Okay. Uh, ooh, give me a league at least. Spain Ca- for the next month. It's not Benzema. It is, but they've got Benzema, Benzema at three. Uh, and you've I'm got sure to get, obviously, the, the go comes in still at number five. Messi. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure about that's, that. That's their ranking. Messi, uh, Vinicius, Benzema, Mbappe, Haaland. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. Top two, you can't argue with. Um, I can't think of anyone else to argue with off the, the top of my head. And I'll be honest, you've argued me out. Uh, I'm at the point where I can't argue with you anymore today. You've um, worn me out with the Allison chat. I've beat you, beat you down, haven't I? <laughs> Into submission. I can't, can't continue from it. I actually watched quite a bit of uh, BKFC recently. Um, weirdly, because it's got quite a bit of attention, obviously, with McGregor stepping into the ring and holding the bell and saying that he would be love to be part of that promotion someday. It'll never happen. Um, they couldn't afford him, to be quite honest. But it's, it's strange to watch. When you look at UFC and you look at the other things like one um, and, you know, Ryzen, that is, it's in its league of its own because of the pure brutality that it involves. It's so, so odd just watching people come out with sausage. They look like, um, I was going to say Prince Charles, but obviously with the coronation, King Charles's fingers when they, they leave ring and obviously the teeth are fucked. It's just madness. I mean, it's funny because I know I recite, I'm a big fan of Rogan and I've been listening to his podcast for, for pretty much as long as uh, it's been around. He was always a big proponent, and I used to, I firmly agree with him on, on this, but on both fronts, that he was always of the view that the UFC wasn't quite as the authentic fighting structure, if that's the way to describe it, because you had gloves. You don't have gloves on your feet, on your knees, on your elbows, but you have them on your hands. You get wraps. That allows you, even though you've got in UFC uh, and MMA far smaller gloves than boxing, that can give you a false sense of how much you can hit people far harder with gloves on without the fear of breaking your hands. So it's not in some ways as realistic as a street fight, for example, which would be the, the ultimate brutal side of it. And Rogan always used to be a big proponent saying there should be no gloves, there should be no gloves. BKFC's onto event 41. They've come, they've put quite together. I mean, they've been around probably five or six years now. And I'm kind of also in agreement with Roman that Rogan, that actually, it's almost too, it's almost too brutal in that you look at their hands. There's a lot more injuries to broken hands, broken knuckles, broken fingers because of um, the, the nature of it being bare knuckle as well. You also have the fact that it fucks up fighters' faces in that you've got the, the bare knuckles to hit people with, which is going to create more uh, blood and cuts around the facing. You've also got to factor in that most of the bare-knuckle fighting community are kind of weathered MMA or pro boxers that have plenty of scar tissue from previous fights. So by the time they get into that 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 arena, if you like, their faces are pretty fucked up anyway. But it's insane the damage it does to people, uh, their, their faces and how they look. I mean, we were talking, obviously, the main event was uh, stopped in between rounds. The doctor came in, Rockhold. Uh, former UFC fighter, former UFC middleweight champion before Bisping took it off him, uh, and a model making a significant money out of the ring, got his fucking face fucked up, knocked his teeth out, broke one of his teeth, you know, so much so that the doctor had to, had to stop it. And you think to yourself, he must have got a sizable chunk of money to doing that because his modelling career is on hold for a fair bit, <laughs> I think it would be fair to say. Well, be using the money that he got from... Um, BKFC to get his modeling career back on track because he's going to buy himself yeah. ashes. Exactly. 
Uh, it, it's just, it's strange to watch and it's definitely worth watching, even if you just watch one event. It, it's just strange to watch the differences in uh, watching like UFC, for example. So you, you go into that, it's all high intensity. A lot of the fights in UFC involve you grappling, you get into, you know, you, you sparring and you smacking and all this sort of stuff. Um, obviously, technical terms there. But with BKFC, it's more methodical because of the points that you've raised there because people don't want to fuck their hands up immediately. They're aware of wary of the damage that it's going to cause them. It's all about making that it's, you know, making sure those significant strikes land and it's much fewer or in, fewer and far between than in comparison to the UFC. Yeah, and of course, it's not mixed martial arts. It is boxing. Yeah, it's boxing. So yeah. that's, that's the other point. It's bare-knuckle boxing, not bare-knuckle uh, MMA. And... But, yeah, I thought it was a bit funny. Connor getting in the ring with the belt. Like you say, they cannot possibly ever afford him. And I don't ever see, unless he spends his 600 million on too much of a coke binge, then I don't think uh, he'll be getting in the ring uh, before long. The only other point I wanted to make, which I find incredible having watched it evolve, is there is clearly absolutely zero drug testing going on in BKFC. Because you see these guys come out Mendes uh, in the headliner, uh, or co-main, sorry, against Eddie Alvarez, uh, who is, again, another very good seasoned pro. Probably looked in the best shape of his career, body and ripped-wise, after a three-year hiatus, retired from the UFC and looked insane. And uh, BKFC's current heavyweight champion is a steroided version of a (laughs) former UFC middleweight called Alan Belcher, who... As you say, fought down at 185, I believe he's like now 220 pounds, and he's fucking ripped, and he's got to be like 38 or 39. Uh, the funny thing I did see, so they've also won on the card a guy, former UFC guy called uh, Big Ben Rothwell. Seen yeah. this, I mean, big, one of the worst physiques of an MMA fighter ever, just like a pot belly, worse than Mark Hunt, just fat. Uh, and he weighs in at the maximum of 285 and now wants to fight Belcher for the for the title. So you could potentially have them fighting with a £60 difference between them, which would be in, £60 is insane. It's a UFC graveyard, isn't it, really? And I know that's yeah. a bit disrespectful, but it, it is. No, it's, it's, it's for those fighters that maybe haven't quite made it, want a you know, seeing where they get their money from, I'm not quite sure, but they seem to be offering people some pretty good money to compete in these events and get people out of retirement and things like that. And I think what it, it does, I think, for a lot of guys is someone like a Mendez, you know, super competitive guy, collegiate wrestler. Look at boxers. They, they, they can't walk away. And I think it, it gives them a nice outlet to scratch that competitive itch you know if look, I, I retired i want to get back in the ring they can train they can take roids they can get back in shape they can earn a nice payday that maybe pays up pays off the mortgage or gives them a, one one or two more paydays before they waltz into retirement speaking of paydays um could we see Nganu in bkfc because no one else wants him don't think they can afford him um, <laughs> no one can He's, he's pitching himself too high, isn't he? So this, this comes on the news. I assume that you're, you're talking about the news that came out in the week that he was uh, rejected, effectively. There's no nicer way to put it, uh, to be signed by 1FC, who probably are 
the biggest uh, MMA promotion, uh, certainly in Asia. I, I, I have to be the number two probably in the world outside the UFC. Um, their CEO can never pronounce his name. His first name is Chaptree. Uh, basically said, oh, we, we don't seem to have the same vision or put some kind of nice way of putting it that like he was asking for far too much money. Did you see how much he had been asking for? <laughs> because the the rumours were that he'd rejected a guaranteed $20 million contract. That's insane. No, I hadn't seen that. And yeah. that is, he's rejecting. Tw- what are you doing, Francis? Who the fuck is advising him on this? I mean, that would... A lot. I wouldn't call that a graveyard because there are some outstanding fighters there that get picked up and uh, train in Thailand and places like that and think, Do you know what, I don't want to fly all the way to America. I don't want to fly all over the world. One uh, FC tends to be far more Asian-based in terms of its events. So only had a few events like in Europe and America. It tends to be in you know Singapore, China, Malaysia, those type of sort of places. And so there's, there's some really decent fighters. You know, they've got uh, uh, their current middleweight champion. I forget his name. There's an argument that he would be easily be top three middleweights in the world after potentially Pereira and Adesanya. Very, very good fighter. And I think he will eventually find his way over to the UFC. Um, but Francis, I mean, 20 mil, what are you doing? There are rumours um, that the PFL um, have a, come to an agreement with him. Um, they can't be offering. I, I I refuse uh, to believe that they can pay him more than twenty mil. I I don't know. I a lot of people are turning on Engano at the moment, and understandably so. He, he seems to. Have, I mean, Cormier came out and said he should just bite the bullet and go back to the UFC. Which, yes, please, because then we can see the John Jones and, and Engano. Easier said than done, though. If he's if he's, it sounds to me like he's that that. He's burnt that bridge with Dana. He, he went too hard on the negotiations. And I think Dana's one said, no, I don't think we'll see him back. So I, I think Dana is not a man for U-turns, as we've seen before. I, I think that's put to very simply. That's the dream. Don't get me yeah. wrong. You know, him, Pavlovich, him, John Jones, who doesn't, as an MMA fan, want to see those? That's where it is. But I'll be honest, I think he's burnt that bridge. I, I don't see that happening. I think his best hope, if he's turning down 20 mil contracts is to try and pick up some scraps in boxing he wants a boxing match don't he clearly he wants the the riches that come with it you might even see him on the uh the undercard of this super event that we'll get on to shortly um with the the five or the four top heavyweights could make it five and uh, well, if they're chucking that kind of money at the fighters that will as you say we'll come on to talk about then you could see them chucking him 10 mil to be on that i i definitely want to see that and go for the an all-out ridiculous card of of that nature, so that wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility with that uh, that oil money that the Saudis have. I mean, anyway, let's stop talking about UFC rejects. Um, UFC two eight eight this weekend, so we're back to as numbered cards and quite a few big fights. Certainly, the 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 main event and the co-main event are definitely worth talking about here. Definitely, and I'll be honest because we've gone particularly. Um, how the level of boring detail went into on my point on Alison. I feel like we, we, we're slightly against the, the, the clock here now. But um, I've you wanted the takeaway again. I've got that. No, 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 not tonight. I'm being disciplined. I, I haven't even had any food yet. I'll probably not just put some pasta together after after we're done. But um, so obviously the headline event is really pisses me off, to be honest with you. You've got um, current bantamweight champ of uh, Aljamain Sterling 
fighting the unranked and retired for three years, King of Cringe, Henry Cejudo, coming back. So that I think that tells you more about the division of the UFC, that the UFC feel they can sell this more with someone like Cejudo as a personality and who's a bit cringeworthy and got a persona that he puts on as playing a bit of a heel, like a, a Colby Covington, um, than giving it to more deserving challengers like Sugar Sean O'Malley. So yeah. for me, every day of the week, he is infinitely more deser- deserving. And these are the kind of ones where most of the time, in my eyes, there's very little you can argue with how the UFC go about their business compared to boxing. You know, they get the stacked cards, they get these things right. Putting someone like that, Sahuja, after three years out, immediately into a title fight is completely wrong. And I think the last time something like this happened, uh, I don't know if you, you will recall this, if you were as much into MMA uh, at this point, is it, it, it strikes me as it's got a similar feel to it as when GSP returned. So if you, if, if, if you don't know, GSP was retired for four years and was the, you know, undisputed, probably the greatest welterweight of all time. Uh, m- most defences in the UFC, etc., cetera, uh, 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 welterweight. Um, went off, had some health problems, came back, went up in weight to challenge England's own Michael Bisping for the middleweight title, won, and then to Dana Zerk, then just fucked off into retirement again. So came in, got his massive payday and created a, a massive void in the division and in, you know, because he came in and then just didn't want to fight again. And I get the feeling that Sahujo, I don't think he'd be one and done if he does win. And his wrestling game, you know, is, is definitely his, his, his best asset, as is Sterling's. So this is probably going to be a, a grappling matchup. Uh, but what I think Sahujo would do, is he's the type that I, my own view... If he wins, I think he vacates immediately and his plan will be, I want to fight Volk up at 145 for the title because if he did do that and bounce up, and he's talked about this, so this is not some sort of conspiracy theory from me, he has got the chance to become the first ever UFC three-weight champion. So, And that then creates this hold-up in the division. What do you then do? You've got a vacant title. Is he going to start? Is he going to if he got that chance? Is he? He's thirty eight. He's not in his in his prime anymore. He's he's on the downside of a father time. Is he is he fit enough to fight like a Volk and jump between divisions and not hold them up? I'm not so sure at thirty eight whether he would be able to. So I think as much as for the UFC, if Sahujo wins, it could be a disaster for him. I don't think it matters because Sahujo doesn't win. Sterling takes him out. I very much hope so because I've never been a Sahujo fan, but ultimately, gold, gold, Olympic gold medal wrestler, very good credentials in terms of that. Good improved striking game. We say he's been retired for three years, but he's been coaching other fighters. He's quite, a, you know, an infamous coach, and he's been remained prevalent in the fight game, which I think is basically how he's got this fight. That he's remained given his cringeworthy interviews and and and, and persona, um, but. It would be interesting, and again, I never could never argue with someone's effort on a legacy. So if he goes and decides, fuck it, I want to try and be win this, and then try and be the three weight world first ever UFC three weight title holder, can you deny the man the chance? No, but again, um, that would be 
after he comes off the back of a loss because, as we know, I'm absolutely stellar at predicting these fights and I'm saying that he wins it, Sterling, that is, by decision. You may well have just given what I said the kiss of death with that. I was hoping to <laughs> back to Ujo so that we'd be safe, but um, I think it'll be a close fight. I think it, I, I would tend to agree with you. I think this goes to decision, four five rounds. Can Sahujo fight off the wing rust at 38 and last that time? Um, I would tend to agree with you. I see a Sterling decision victory, but um, certainly but not. Not, beyond... but not anymore now that I've predicted it. Yeah, and now I'm going to change my mind completely, but certainly not beyond the realms of possibility that Sahujo pulls it off. Because he's that he's he's that kind of character that could do that, and he's got something. There's just something about him. As much as I dislike him as a fighter, he, he's very very skilled, and th- there's a possibility of that. Co-main event is what interests me more. I'll be honest. Um, you've got Burns and Muhammad, um, Bilal. I and Bilal Muhammad. That is, I am a very big fan of his. I think he's. Slightly more boring what than what the majority of uh, people would probably like in an UFC. And certainly, um, I'm going to coin your phrase here, the casual fans um, aren't necessarily going to be the biggest fans of him. But uh, this is a fight that could go either way. Obviously, Burns has only lost against, uh, or certainly in the, the more recent years, and I think since probably 2018, I think it was, when he got beat by Dan Hooker, uh, he's only lost against Usman and, and Kimaev. So it's not as though he's lost against, you know, little names. He's lost against the the best of the best. Um, obviously, Mohammed uh, has has come back. Um, he had the the non contest against Edwards. Um, I think he's only lost three three times in the UFC. Um, obviously, the last loss being in two thousand nineteen. This one could go either way. I'm going to back Bilal for this one personally. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with you. I mean, you've got a quick turnaround for Gilbert Burns. Uh, and what I believe is I can't remember who fell out of this. So it was Bilal, somebody else, wasn't it? And the other fighter got injured and Gilbert Burns jumped in to save the day, which the UFC always love and give a lot of kudos and credit to those fighters that... Um, save a card if you like that without this it isn't a stellar card if it didn't have too good to go main uh he's only recently beaten masvidal so for burns he'll be getting a lot of kudos in the ufc uh bank the the the, the, the strange one about this for me is whoever wins personally is the far more deserving and clear obvious answer for the next cracker edwards if you ask me this should be a number one contender fight but the UFC seem hell-bent on not veering from giving Colby that next shot, do they? And it's gone very quiet on Edwards Colby, but it feels like the winner should have that, and that, that's what should be dangled here, particularly is that, you know, they're both very dangerous guys, both quite underrated, but I, I don't think that happens. Um, so... The only thing that you could argue is do both of them. And I think I saw uh, Cormier maybe make a point on this as well, that does the winner. And I think Cormier had it for Bilal sort of say, whoever wins should stay in shape and be the, try and be the alternate basically for Leon versus Colby. So if either of them fell out, you could slot the winner of this in to, to save that fight and that card. It's definitely a it's it's definitely a welterweight title limiter. Um, I, I think you you're right. For me, I don't think Colby deserves that next shot, but he's going to get it. 
So it's one of those where you sort of suck it up and see, accept it, move on from it. Um, whoever wins out of Covington and Edwards, which obviously would be back in our boy, um, although not so much because he's kind of pisses off because it doesn't sound like he's going to be fighting in London. Almost certainly now he's going to be going elsewhere. Um but I think the winner of that definitely fights the winner of this. So it works to be a little bit of a tournament, um, similar to what we're going to be discussing in just a second in terms of the boxing. But I think whoever does win this gets the next shot. So they won't necessarily get this shot. So this coming shot, they'll get the next one. I don't disagree with you, but the problem with that, I mean, it could go both ways. This is we all know Dana's word of, oh, you'll be next after someone else comes in and pulls off some stunning spinning back kick victory of, of you know, it's a, a stacked division well away. And, you know, Usman, Usman comes in and suddenly lays out someone else they put in front of him. Do they put it back on them for the fourth against Edwards? So the only thing, if I were either of them and I won convincingly, even if they would, in my eyes, be the most deserving challenger for, for Edwards next, even if Dana gives them the nod of you're next after Colby, in the grand scheme of things, we know that means jack shit, sadly. Yeah. It's but a I... weird one as well because Bilal actually did an interview, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't know if it was last month or the month before, this year's all sort of mangled into one month at this moment in time, but I'm pretty sure he came out and said that he actually wanted to fight Usman afterwards because there were rumours that Rachmanov was going to be the one that he was be putting up against if he was to come through this fight against Burns, but he came out then publicly and said, oh, I want to fight Usman. So it's a weird one. We've got Kamayev as well. If Kamayev is, is in the mix, if he wants to stay at, at 170, you know, he's certainly in there as well. And he isn't lined up for a fight um, at the moment. So, um, yeah, as you say, it's, I think a lot of it is depends on this. I wonder if in the background, because of the quietness, my suspicion may be that there may be a bit of a standoff between the UFC and Edwards, because Edward clearly doesn't think Colby's the next contender and deserving. But, the UFC seem hell-bent on putting that ahead. And as much as I think a champ should get some say in these, we know that realistically that doesn't matter. Who Dana says you're fighting, so you're fighting. If Dana is hell-bent on it being Colby, Edwards is going to have to fucking step up and do it if he wants to be stay, stay and be champ. Finally then, there's not that much on boxing this week, um, unless you want to talk about people getting into criminal trouble and carrying around gats and all this sort of shit. Um, there is more rumours that this strange, do we want to call it a mini tournament, is set to take place in Saudi Arabia. So Eddie Hearn has done a, a, a recent interview and he's clearly been going to Saudi Arabia. The rumours were that he is organising a fight between AJ and Wilder, which I think is probably one of the only fights that you would actually want to see AJ have. I don't think that you're particularly interested in anything else at this moment with AJ, and I'd be interested in that. It'd certainly answer a, a number of questions that a lot of people have. The rumours are that is a little bit like the UFC. Whether it's a co-main event or it's on the undercard, I think it'd have to be a co-main event. The main event being Usyk Fury for Undisputed. Can you see it happening? I can't see it happening because we know... More than anything, no matter how much money I think, and you'll you'll come on and, and you can remind us of the figures that have been mooted in a sec. I'll be honest with you, I don't know how much money it'd take for Fury to fight Usyk. I genuinely think he's ducking him and it, it won't happen. And what you also then get is it's 
look how difficult it's been already to put that fight together, trying to then coordinate a date between those two and then the next clear top two heavyweight boxes as well in Fury and AJ. It's fucking, I mean, it's like dealing with four prom queens, isn't it? It's like a fucking having the most four princessy birds on the go at one time. And it would be a nightmare trying to deal with all of that and put it together. So I love the idea. I love that format that the UFC have kind of taken. And, and you know, that the, the basically, you know, Fury, Usyk is for the under, undisputed. Uh, the, the other two, it's a clear number one uh, eliminator fight. Winner gets the next crack at the undisputed. Love it. Uh, it would be the one of the best, if not the best card ever, with having those two fights alone. And if they're going big like that, why not fucking go full hog and get an Inganu Shizora? Let's or, see. even better, Jake Paul KSI on the undercard. Yes. No. I mean, <laughs> why, but why? But if you were going to go for that stack card, the, the crazy thing, and I know we come back to maybe repeating ourselves a little bit here with things like, look about, if you... If, Remind me of the figures. So for, firstly, just just for, for our listeners, tell me what the figures that you, you told me were mooted for both of those, or for those four. So the rumours were that, the, and this is Simon Jordan, uh, it was on TalkSport, um, I think it was this morning or yesterday. The rumours are that the Saudis have a specific cut in mind. They have 200 million that they're willing to throw at this. The 200 million will be split. 90 million to Tyson Fury. Uh, 50 million to Usyk and 30 million each for AJ and Wilder. They are crazy sums of money for one fight. And that, I mean, that would be their purses. You've got the pay-per-views probably on top. I'm sure they'd get extra money from the pay-per-views, the sponsorship and all the rest of it being as big as that. So they're going to make more than that each. But the crazy thing for me there is fucking, if you're going to throw that much money at it, knock 10 mil off what you're saying for Fury. And I guarantee you for a mil, you could get a new A, yeah, so that'd be the biggest purse he's ever had. We, we could go and we could set up some of these fights that we've talked about, these fantasy-type fights. You know, Errol Spence Jr. You gave them, Errol Spence Jr., Terence Crawford, you gave them five mil apiece. They'll take that, I guarantee. That's, they're in. Do you know what I mean? And just absolutely make the best ever card. You know, the undeniably greatest ever boxing card and get some of these fucking absolute murderers on that card and just fill it out and it, it just feels that 90 million for fury i mean even in even in his wildest dreams and his crazy when he was talking about the splits that he was asking for that Usyk did relent on there's no way he was getting 90 million no getting, not a chance and not the, even uh, half that not even, I, I know, not even a quarter of that yeah not even close um the, the biggest issues that you're going to have uh, fury is obviously quite difficult to deal with uh, if you believe Eddie Hearn, which, again, do you believe anything that a boxing promoter says these days that isn't biased? Um, he says that he believes Joshua is in, he believes that Wilder is in, and he be- believes that Usyk is easily in. It's all dependent on Fury and his wildish demands. The issue that you're going to have is to do with the uh, distribution, the promoter rights. You know, is it going to be shown on Dizone? Is it going to be shown on BT? Is it going to be shown on Sky Sports? Well, it's not going to be shown on Sky Sports, but um, et cetera, et cetera. There's going to be so much money and so much hassle with that. I know that I made it as a joke. I would argue genuinely that I would actually put Jake Paul and KSI on that card. As silly as that sounds, I know it's not real boxing. But if you're talking about wanting promotion and you're talking about wanting publicity, 
they will be on that under. They'll want their own card, don't be wrong, and it'll never happen because their egos won't allow them to be on the undercard of something. But if you give them enough money, they will sell that fight to the younger audience as well and all the rest of it. You've got the greatest card of all time with the most publicity of all time. Yeah, I mean, I hate to admit it, but you're not wrong in terms of getting eyes on that card, bringing those additional... Not that you'd need it, obviously. Boxing viewers, you know, kids, 12-year-olds that like YouTube would watch that as well. So I see your point. It would definitely taint it for me because if we're going to start going for the biggest boxing card ever, let's have actual professional boxers and not YouTubers on it. So um, I wouldn't, I'm definitely not for it in the slightest, but I can't argue with the the angle you're talking about and the business acumen of bringing extra eyes for extra promotion rights. The problem that you'd get there is you're bringing even extra promoters in because they've both got their own fucking promotions, haven't they? So dealing yeah. with that as it is, you're then bringing two other crazily demanding drama queens in that are going to think they, they deserve a bigger slice of the pie when it's like, look, you're the fuck, you just bring in the eyes. You're not, no one gives a fuck about watching you two fight. You just bringing in the twelve-year-olds and the pay-per-view money. All eyes are on the actual fighters and those big four or anyone else that they filled it with. But I love the idea. I just, I just can't see it happening in a month of Sundays. No, and I'll be honest, it won't go ahead anywhere because by the time we get to whether it be November, December, um, Wilder's probably going around shooting people, isn't it? And um, holding people up and doing drive-bys, etc. This this one kind of missed me by, and I, I haven't really done my, my reading into it. You told me about it, so he'd obviously got caught with a weapon. I'm not sure even what state he was in, because America's obviously pretty crazy with their laws and their carry. LA. LA. So I think LA, and I only know this from Rogan, is quite difficult to get a gun uh, permit. You need a permit. You need a kilt concealed carry permit if you're going to carry it around the streets, compared to some of the more lax state shall we say like a texas where every motherfucker has a gun and walks around with it fucking going to the supermarket but i mean out of most human beings walking the earth does he need a gun when you've let, got let, let me just read this clip from the um as we're going to the end of the, the episode but let me just read this clip from uh one of the stories pulled over because he had an obscured number plate and excessive window tinting on his Rolls Royce. Of course he does. Um, police reportedly, while searching him, smelt marijuana. It led to a wider search of the car where they found some of the drug and a 9 millimeter handgun. He then went on to tweet, after being released on bail just after 6.30am, I'd rather be safe than sorry. The end. I did see that, which is a crazy thing. But in America, where they are fucking lunatics and everyone seems to have a gun, I can't in some ways, I suppose. We we, we just don't, I think, as English people, grasp what it's like in America. You know, there are more guns than Americans. There's 350 Americans and something like 600 million guns in America. It's crazy. Every motherfucker's got a gun. But he is in, like, the 0.001 percentile of the population that can handle himself if some shit goes down. I would not, you'd not be picking a fight with Deontay Wilder, would you, in a street fight? You know, even if he's picked up at gunpoint, I quite fancy myself to have that fucking bullet right hand than a gun. So um, the only thing I wonder on that is, again, I know different states vary, 
I thought, and this is purely based on a very limited knowledge, maybe of old gangster rap songs. So things may have changed, but I thought they needed a warrant to check the car. Because you always see this thing, don't you? And in films that basically in England, reasonable suspicion, they smelt something like marijuana, bang, they're in, they're checking for everything. I was under the impression, particularly LA being one of the tight states like that, that you could almost sit there and say, fuck off, you can't go through my car, you need a warrant to get into my stuff. So, so just that, to check, what songs have you got this from? Uh, Dr. Dre, mainly, uh, <laughs> you know, a bit of uh, old school rap, uh, Jay-Z, uh, 99 Problems, but a bit shame one, I'm sure there's a reference in that to him saying, you're going to need a warrant for that to look through his car, there's a, a, lot, a famous line in that, but... My understanding, obviously, that the laws are, are quite different in America in terms of stop and search, if you want to call it that, than England. That happens in England. You get pulled over by the police car. They can pull you over for anything they want. They can trump up some reasonable suspicion. Oh, we thought you looked like you were driving all over the place. So you thought you were drunk. So now we can look for your car. Before you know it, they're looking everywhere. You get found out. I would I, I thought America was a lot stricter in that, that they needed a warrant to search your car as they would like if they turned up at your house. They can't just come in your house in America and go through it. They need a warrant. I don't know. Uh, but before we go, are we going to get a rendition of any gangster rap from you? Uh, no, nor will you get a rendition of any five, which I've performed recently in the office. I know uh, to much to the delight of my colleagues. Um Maybe They're quite promiscuous, a, a five, I've heard. So the rumours say. <laughs> um, Let, uh, let's just end it there before we get done for libel or before you um, insult anyone with your horrendous renditions of any type of song, um, whether it be classic five, which is much more in tune for a white guy like yourself, or whether it be ruining any sort of gangster rap so listen to it after we're done 99 <laughs> problems but a bitch ain't one there is a very definite line from jay-z of uh where they he, it's the one where the, the verse where he's playing both himself and the policeman and having a conversation and um he says something pulled over and he says you're going to need a warrant for that uh are you some type of lawyer or something um and he says no you're going to need a warrant for that classic classic tune i don't know what to say Let's just end it quickly. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll speak to you next week. <laughs>